Well, certainly. I think the first thing we have to um, talk about is the uh, premise of this. Uh, is it a an unprovoked act of aggression, as the West claims, or uh, was Russia, in fact, um, justified in uh, conducting what they called a preemptive act of self-defense, collective self-defense, uh, seeking to eliminate an imminent threat uh, that was posed by the Ukrainian armed forces to the populations of the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, oblasts or, or regions. Um, and I, I think history clearly shows that the history is on the side of Russia on this one, that uh, it, this is not an unprovoked act of aggression. This is a legitimate act of uh, self-defense. Uh, we have eight years of, um, you know, the Ukrainian government ignoring uh, the Minsk Accords, not just ignoring it, but admitting that they were using the Minsk Accords simply as a shield to buy time to build a military to do that which Russia has accused them of, to carry out offensive operations designed to defeat the uh, uh, ethnic Russians of uh, the Donbass who objected to the coup d'etat that took place in Kiev in uh, February of uh, 2014. We now know that Germany and France likewise uh, viewed this uh, Minsk Accord as a sham. So Russia was on the right side of history. Russia did everything possible to resolve this issue peacefully. They sought implementation of the Minsk Accords. They sought a new European security framework uh, that we set forth in uh, treaties that they, uh, draft treaties that they provided to NATO and the United States. They were ignored. So Russia intervened. Now, the first phase of their intervention was it took everybody, I think, by surprise. Most military analysts assumed that if Russia was going to intervene militarily, that it would be as war and that Russia would come in using wartime doctrine and uh, would have decisively defeated the Ukrainian military on the field of battle. That wasn't apparently Russia's objective because, again, Russia didn't want a war. And I think now we realize that, uh, that Russia was actually seeking the shortest possible um, duration of conflict, that the purpose of the conflict was to get Ukraine to the negotiating table. And they succeeded. They had three negotiations in Goldmill, Belarus in early March that led to a fourth and final negotiation in Istanbul yes. on 1 April that could have ended the war. I want to make that point all over. This war could have been ended on 1 April. And had it been ended on 1 April, Donetsk and Lugansk would have been independent Crimea would have been Russia, but Zaporizhia and Kherson would have been Ukraine. And there wouldn't be hundreds of thousands of dead Ukrainian soldiers, tens of millions of displaced Ukrainian civilians, and trillion dollar worth of damage to Ukrainian infrastructure. So Russia's objectives in this war were to bring this war to a rapid conclusion on terms that were favorable to Ukraine. Favorable to Ukraine. But this was denied Russia because of the intervention of NATO, which took us into part two, phase two of this operation, which was the military liberation of the Donbass. And this is what we saw from May through, say, August, uh, the grinding down of the Ukrainian armed forces, the defeat of the Ukrainian armed forces, to be frank, by Russian forces that were still organized uh, on a peacetime complement, 200,000 troops, um, you know, no mobilization, etc. And this would have succeeded. Uh, Russia was succeeding except that NATO provided tens of billions of dollars worth of military equipment, which enabled Ukraine to reconstitute its military and carry out offensive operations in September, October against an overextended Russian flank in Kharkov. 
uh, the Russians were compelled to retreat, regroup, um, and that moves us into the next phase of the operation, which was basically Russia holding tight in a defensive position, grinding down the Ukrainian military. I think everybody needs to understand there's a um, pattern here uh, that the Ukrainians end up being sacrificed on the battlefield in overwhelming numbers, whereas the Russians, while suffering serious casualties, aren't suffering casualties anywhere near the Ukrainians. And this is important because the next phase of the Russian operation uh, involved two things, political consolidation of the Russian position and expansion of the Russian military posture. Mobilization of 300,000 reservists. These are uh, people with military experience, relevant military experience. Um, and in addition to that, about you know between 80 to 120,000 additional volunteers. So it's a significant number of personnel that were being brought into service to expand the Russian military beyond the 200,000 peacetime complement they started this operation with. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Ukrainians are being ground down. They don't have reserves. They've used all the reserves. They're in the business out of begging for equipment and forcefully mobilizing personnel to meet the demands of the battlefield. Um, Putin consolidated his uh, political position um, by beating all the odds when it comes to economic sanctions. This is an important part of the conflict because the goal and objective of the West in imposing sanctions on Russia was to cause the political collapse of Russia, what they call a Moscow Maidan. Didn't happen. Russia won the economic battle. Russia's economy is doing okay. The European economy, not so good. Um, and then politically, uh, the mobilization was a risky move because there were many Russians who were opposed to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Even if they didn't... Um, you know, uh, demonstrate against the Russian government in their hearts, this was not a popular war. But because NATO intervened on beside side, this war turned from being a Russian-Ukrainian problem to a proxy war between NATO and Russia, where Ukraine is the NATO proxy. And when you define the conflict in that way, the Russian people said, we must defeat this proxy. So Putin actually consolidated his position politically. So that's where we are today. Russia is finalizing the training of this mobilized force. Ukraine has nothing left. They're out begging for everything they can get. And they're only getting a few things. Uh, they're out of manpower. And this summer, they're going to run out of ammunition. And you don't have to be a military man to understand what that means. When you run out of artillery ammunition in a war that's defined by artillery, you've lost the war. And Ukraine is on a trajectory of losing this war this time this summer or this coming summer. Uh, tell me, can, can, can we make a co conclusion? This actually is a war. Actually, it's a conflict, war conflict. Is it between Russia and Ukraine or between Russia and NATO? First of all, it's not a war. Not a and war. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why it's not a war. Because not a war. Zelensky's still alive. Uh-huh. If this was a war, Zelensky would have been dead on day one. Zeluzhny is still alive. If this was a war, Zeluzhny would be dead. The Ukrainian parliament meets. If this was a war, there would be no meeting of the Ukrainian parliament. Trains operate from Poland into Kiev on a regular scheduled basis. If this was a war, that would not happen. This is not a war. People need to understand that. Even though Russia has intensified combat operations on the front lines, this is not a war. Russia's made it clear that if Ukraine wants a war, then Ukraine will get a war. But when they do that, Zelensky will die. 
immediately that quick. So this isn't a war between Ukraine and Russia. This has become a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia using Ukraine as a NATO proxy, but it's still not a war because if this was a war, every single one of those NATO satellites that are flying overhead that's providing perfect intelligence and perfect communication support to the Ukrainians would be shut off. A war, in a war, you don't get to communicate freely. In a war, you don't get to travel freely. In a war, you don't get to go to bed at night in your bed as the president and not worry about you know, not waking up in the morning because a missile hit you. This isn't a war. This is a special military operation. On the front lines, it's, it's very much a war-like situation because that's real combat taking place. But this isn't a war. <laughs> Not even close. Okay. Uh, but it is a conflict between NATO and Russia. Yes. Okay. Uh, what, what do you think about the casualties? There is a lot of numbers uh, going around about how many casualties has, has Russia, Ukraine, how many... Um, uh, people from other countries are involved and de de killed there. What do you think about the numbers? Well, first of all, this is guesswork <laughs> because yeah, of course, we don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so I am very comfortable. I'm horrified, but I'm very comfortable by saying that over 300,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. Died? Died. Dead. Killed. I'm very so comfortable with that. More than half a million in that case out of uh, out of service, or because even oh, more. when you add when you add wounded, you're you're probably getting upwards of five hundred, six hundred thousand Ukrainian soldiers casualties. On the But other side, dead. On the other Russians, side, I'm very comfortable with a number of between thirty-five and forty-five thousand dead Russians. This includes Chechens, Wagner, and others. Um, So I, I'm, I, I think that a, a, a total casualty figure of 85 to 95,000 Russian casualties, dead and wounded, is a realistic number. Uh, uh, next, my, uh, next question. My question is, what do you think in this moment on the front line, uh, how is the moral of the soldiers from one and from the another side? On the Ukrainian side, I would say that the morale is very mixed. Uh, I think there are some very professional units and there are units that are imbued with um, a sense of radical nationalism that make them fanatics. And I believe that their morale is quite high. Um, they're in the business of killing Russians and business is good. They're able to go to the front line and they're able to engage in combat with Russians and kill Russians. Um, they're not winning, but their morale is good. They're doing what they want to do. I would put them at about 30 to 40 percent of the Ukrainian military. I would say another uh, maybe 30 to 40 percent are stoic. They don't want to be there, but they're there. So they're going to do their job. They're not doing it with enthusiasm. They're not fanatics, uh, but they will do their job um, you know, up to a point. Uh, when the time comes, though, when they're faced with the imminence of death, they will surrender. And we see this over and over again with people surrendering who otherwise would be capable of resistance. And then I would say that there is about 20 percent of people who just don't want to be there. Um, uh, they don't want to fight and they will run away the first opportunity. Uh, so it's mixed on the Ukrainian side. On the on other side. Um, again, I would say mixed, but in a different way. 
Uh, you have units like Wagner who are just 100% dedicated to the task. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, they, they have morale that's equivalent to the, the most elite units. You also have units like the uh, paratroopers uh, who are also very dedicated, very motivated. You have the Marines who have shown a tremendous uh, proclivity for, um, for fighting in sustained and, 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 and sustained manner without losing resolve. Um, and then below that, you have, um, you know, units like the uh, like Chechens who are motivated, but maybe lack some of the um, sophistication of regular uh, combat forces, but they're still very dedicated. And then beyond that, you have what I would what I would characterize as people who would prefer to be somewhere else but recognize the absolute necessity of being where they are and fully cognizant of the reality that the only way they go home is through the Ukrainians, that the only way to go home is by having victory. So they are committed fully to victory. They're not fanatics. They're not elite. They're just your standard Russian fighting man who says, I got to get the job done. And they're going to get the job done. But notice what I didn't put in there. There's no 20% of people who don't want to be there and are going to run away. I think, you know, I mean, you always will find cowards in the military. You always find people who, you know, let it down. But generally speaking, uh, the Russian soldiers are of a very high caliber, uh, very high quality, and uh, a very large level of commitment. These are guys who are going to see it through the end. Okay. Uh, if uh, we see all those, if we are following all those uh, social media and news, uh, we are under the impression impression that uh, NATO is losing on the battlefield from a private military organization, from Wagner. <laughs> is that... Uh, that looks very humiliating, I must say. Well, they're not just losing to Wagner, they're losing to Russia. They're losing, I mean, NATO's not doing well here. For this, for this proxy war, NATO's not doing well. Keep in mind, NATO is providing Ukraine with near-perfect intelligence. Uh, NATO satellites, NATO reconnaissance aircraft, are able to collect intelligence information without interference. If this was a war, come back to what I said earlier, all those planes would be shot down. All those satellites would be turned off. But because this isn't a war, NATO can provide perfect intelligence support to Ukraine and near-perfect communication support, meaning the Ukrainians can communicate when necessary. Um, they're also able to provide significant logistics support uh, and uninterrupted operational planning. So when we call the Ukrainian military a proxy army of NATO, it is just that. It operates like a NATO army. It operates under the instructions of NATO, with the intelligence from NATO, with the communications from NATO, and with the equipment from NATO. And they're losing. They're getting beat. Not just by Wagner, by everybody. This is, the Russians are beating NATO in this proxy conflict. Uh, your country and my country, we are, uh, member, are members of NATO. So they are beating us. us. Say again? Uh, they, they are beating us, actually, because your country and my country, we are members of that. Uh, they're beating our proxy. They're beating yeah. our proxy. They're not beating American troops. 
They are beating up uh, American government. They're beating American policy. Policy, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're beating a NATO um, uh, posture, a NATO um, uh, policy decision that's backed by money and materiel. But they're not beating a NATO army, meaning American troops, British troops, German troops. There's a mercenary contingent there that, you know, people say it's NATO-like, but mercenaries aren't soldiers. I, I have zero, I don't view Wagner as a mercenary force. I view Wagner as a unique contract mechanism uh, to meet the unique um, support requirements of Donetsk and Lugansk during the eight-year period. Um, but it is a professional force that serves Russia. The Wagner soldiers that are fighting uh, aren't fighting for the dollar. They're fighting for Russia. American mercenaries, British mercenaries, French mercenaries, uh, they're not fighting for their countries. They're fighting for money. Um, they don't even know the Ukraine that they're supporting. They know nothing of the history. They know nothing of the culture. Many times, once they become familiar with who they are fighting alongside, they become disgusted because they're exposed to Banderist ideology, uh, neo-Nazi ideology, and the utter hatred uh, and criminal level hatred that the Ukrainians have towards the Russians. They bear witness to the massacre of Russian prisoners of war, the torture of Russians, the murder of Russians, uh, and they realize that they're on the wrong side. So we can't call the NATO, the, the Western mercenaries a NATO force. In the same regard, there's a large number of Polish um, soldiers fighting in Ukraine. And are they mercenaries or are they what we call sheep-dipped soldiers? I don't know. Um, I like to think they're probably a mix of the two, um, but they're being beaten as well. Um, you know, the NATO's not succeeding on any front. They had a moment of success back in September, October, where they were able to take advantage of an overextended Russian uh, line in, in Kharkov to push the Russians back. But after that, there's been no meaningful success. You can have tactical success, yes, with HIMARS uh, and intelligence, they've been able to... <coughs> strike um, Russian logistics and command and control centers and inflict casualties on the Russia. But this isn't a game-winning technology. It's a game-changing technology. It forced the Russians to alter their approach. Um, and it's cost Russia casualties, but it hasn't changed the outcome, which is Russia is winning this, this fight decisively. One small question. Uh, till September or mid of October, Uh, in the spotlight from the Russian side were uh, Kadyrov troops, Chechens. After that are Wagner, Wagner's troops. W uh, why is that? Now we are not reading too much about Chechens. Well, here, here's, this is my opinion. This is purely opinion. I, I, I don't claim to have any inside information. Um, First of all, Wagner was a very secretive organization. Um, uh, it operated in the shadows uh, for certain legal reasons. I mean, um, it, it was meant to get around Russian constitutional restrictions on using Russian military forces in foreign countries. Um, and up until uh, the, um, the, uh, the referendum that led to annexation, Um, Donetsk and Lugansk was a foreign country, so yeah. you have to be careful about having Russian troops operating there. Um, the Chechens um, operated again on the soil of Lugansk and Donetsk, and so they had sort of um, 
independence when it came to their uh, information um, warfare. Um, the Russian military, you didn't hear anything about them. Occasionally, you'd get the Ministry of Defense to release a video of the Marines and a video of the paratroopers and a video of the tankers and all that. But they weren't out there tooting their horns. They do a very poor job of media relations. The Chechens, on the other hand, were doing a very good job of media relations. They were very actively involved in promoting uh, the work of the, of, of the Chechen forces. Um, but once the annexation took place and Lugansk and Donetsk became Russia, uh, the Chechen forces had to be incorporated into the Russian military structure. Um, and as such, their uh, social media um, uh, strategies were taken under control by the Russians. Uh, and so that's why we see we see less and less of the Chechens. They're still there. They're still fighting. Uh, and they're fighting very well. But we're seeing less of them because they've been incorporated. Wagner is still a private military contract. And so Wagner has uh, been in a situation where they can no longer pretend they don't exist. <laughs> Everybody knows that they exist. And so they've taken the opposite approach. Rather than hide in the shadows, Wagner has stepped out uh, because here's the deal. What need does Russia have for a private military contractor now that the territory that they're fighting on is Russia? That's a fundamental question. Well, you know, the, the temptation, therefore, would be for Russia to absorb Wagner into the structures in the same way that they absorbed the Donetsk militias, the Lugansk militias, uh, the Chechens and other volunteer units. Um, Wagner doesn't want that. So what Wagner is doing is a PR campaign to talk about Wagner as this unique fighting force that must be retained because it can do things that they claim no other unit can do. It's not true. I mean, Wagner's very good, but trust me, I think the paratroopers could carry out similar close quarter combat assaults in an urban environment. So could the Marines, so could other Russian units. But Wagner is very good. We're, we're not trying to insinuate, but I think Wagner's in a fight for its life, its political life, because legally speaking, there's no reason to have Wagner on the ground anymore. There's no reason for a private military uh, company. Uh, they should be incorporated from a legal standpoint into the uh, Russian military. And indeed, I believe there are uh, there's efforts by the general staff to do just that. And so you see now this big propaganda battle where uh, Rogozhin is, is promoting Wagner, promoting how good Wagner is, how well they fight, etc. And you see pushback from the military, not saying that Wagner's not good. I think the military says they're very good, very good shock troops. But, you know, all of their attacks are supported by the Russian army. There's paratroopers, there's tankers, there's artillery, there's, you know, other groups out there fighting in support of Wagner. Wagner's not doing it by themselves. Um, and so I think Wagner, that's why we hear a lot about Wagner, because I believe that they're involved in a public relations battle to uh, preserve their independent status as a private military contract. What do you think on the opposite side? What do you think about uh, those uh, groups or battalions in the Ukrainian army, which are following uh, the their fascist and Nazist roots from World War II, for example, um, um, the 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 the, the, uh, 
Edelweiss battalion, you know, you know like uh, in 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 Hitler's time in in Germany, and uh, this is pure fascism, pure Nazism as a as ideology for those people who are in the, in that uh, military compound. I mean, what do I think of them as individuals? I find them disgusting. Um, I find their ideology repulsive. Um, and I uh, find their continued existence to be odious. Um, and I rejoice every time I hear of their defeat on the battlefield. What do I think of them professionally in terms of their combat skills? It's not my opinion. It's the Russian opinion. These guys fight hard. These guys fight very hard. Um, you know, they, they don't surrender, generally speaking. Um, they fight very well. Um, you know, uh, Pergosian again speaks highly of the Ukrainians who, uh, who 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 Wagner is fighting against. He doesn't pretend that these guys are cowards. He he calls them heroes. In fact, their bodies he treats with the utmost respect as fallen warriors. Um, and I, I think most Russian officers will say that uh, you know, generally speaking, the Ukrainian army performs at a very high level, uh, regardless of their ideology. So, but, but all these units are fanatic units. But they, all, um, all those badges with uh, with uh, swastika-like no, no. flags and so on. What? I condemn it. I condemn it. I don't condone it. And, um, you know, I'm supposed to be an outside observer, but as uh, somebody whose relatives fought in the Second World War against Nazi Germany, um, I, I uh, detest any modern-day um, continuation of that ideology, any modern-day embrace of the symbology of a, of, of a hateful um, ideology. And um, I, I have to be honest when I say I um, am, am gleeful, gleeful when I see dead Nazis on the battlefield, gleeful, because that's what my uncle fought against. That's what my uh, relatives fought against. Uh, I'm, I can't be objective on this. I can be objective when I talk about politics. I can be objective when I talk about military strategy. But when it comes to killing Nazis, there's no objectivity here. I hope the Russians kill them all. Because they all deserve to die. Uh, can we can we discuss a little bit about uh, Transnistria? Actually, the the Moldavian problem, I can say, because <laughs> Transnistria is bordering with Odessa, with Odessa part of not just a town but the whole whole territory, and um, it th that part controls actually. Uh, the D Dunab River entering in in a Black Sea and it's strategically very very important place. Also over there, uh, th there are five thousand um, uh, Russian soldiers, but under the uh, they are uh, peacekeepers over there uh, by the decision of United Nations. So it's very complicated over there. What do you think? Well, first of all, it is a political problem um, between Moldova and Russia, to be honest. I mean, even though it's between Moldova and Transnistria, which calls itself an independent uh, entity, Russia plays a heavy, uh, a heavy influence. Russia has just said that from the perspective of what's going on now, uh, Transnistria is Russia. An attack on Transnistria is an attack on Russia um, and will be treated as such. Um, 
I don't believe the Moldovan government. I, I know that the new prime minister has said that, um, you know, that they are going to seek to return Transnistria to Moldova. Um, and there was some insinuation that they could, this could be done by force of arms. It won't be done by force of arms. The Moldovans simply lack the capacity to do it. And uh, moreover, I, I believe that if Moldova did make a military move against Transnistria, the Moldovan population would rise up and um, remove President Sandu from office, remove the new prime minister from office. So um, I'm not worried about that. The, the big concern is from Ukraine. Uh, they've apparently mobilized or, or you know, positioned uh, 20 to 25,000 troops near uh, Transnistria, and uh, there's been talk that they might uh, preemptively attack. But again, I don't believe they will, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I don't believe they will. When we said at the beginning that uh, this isn't a war, if Ukraine attacks Transnistria, it's an attack against Russia, and Ukraine is now at war with Russia. And uh, Volodymyr Zelensky will be dead within 24 hours. So will Zeluzhny, so will the entire Ukrainian leadership. All bridges, all roads, all rail lines, all tunnels connecting Ukraine with uh, with NATO will be severed. Uh, and the level of destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure, critical infrastructure, will go up by orders of magnitude. Uh, and Ukraine knows this. So there's no victory to be had uh, here. What Ukraine is doing by putting 25,000 troops there is compelling Russia to set aside uh, you know, critical resources that could be used otherwise and just in case there was an attack. Because you can't threaten things if you don't have the capacity to do it. So if Ukraine is positioning itself where it could attack Transnistria, Russia must hold into reserve sufficient strike capacity to respond, sufficient military capacity to respond, which means that's capacity that's not being used on the front line. So this is actually a very smart move on the part of Ukraine. Um, it's the kind of thing that I would have recommended they do because it's a force multiplier. Yes, you're pulling 25,000 troops from the front line, but those 25,000 troops can be refitting, reorganizing, resting. Um, but by positioning them near Transisteria, you're forcing the Russians to create contingencies to uh, to deal with them. And that's bleeding resources from the main Russian effort. So that's what I think is happening. I don't believe there's going to be a Ukrainian attack or Moldovan attack on Transnistria. On the end of our conversation, uh, what is the present situation, especially around Bakhmut and all the line of the front? Uh, right now, it's a desperate situation for the Ukrainians, and they themselves admit this. Um, they have committed a tremendous amount of resources into the defense of Bakhmut in a failing effort. Um, Wagner, together with the Russian army, has painstakingly, at great cost, um, almost achieved the encirclement of Bakhmut. Whatever Ukrainian troops are in there aren't coming out, um, or if they come out, they'll either be dead or prisoners of war. Um, and this will be a deep psychological blow to the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military. Having overcommitted to Bakhmut, uh, to lose Bakhmut will be, will be a blow, but it doesn't mean the war is over. The Ukrainian soldiers, as I said, are very capable, very professional. They will fall back on prepared defensive lines and the war will start over again. Um, this war will not end until Russia has liberated the totality of the territory that's encompassed by Novorossiya and Donbass. That means the territory where Ukrainian forces are now must be uh, liberated from the Russian perspective. And then Russia will continue to push them back 150 kilometers um, which means there's a lot of fighting left to do left that, to go. That means Kharkov and Kherson, all those towns. It means Odessa. 
that means Odessa also. Yeah. 